Good morning and welcome to CSIS. I'm Lana Baydas, a senior fellow at the Human Rights Initiative here at CSIS. It's my pleasure to join forces with the Charity and Security Network and the Humanitarian Forum to organize our event today for the launch of the Humanitarian Forum studies on the impact of de-risking on the humanitarian response done in collaboration with the Overseas Development Institute and the London School of Economics. As many of you know, financial institution in response to the US government guideline in the anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism have increasingly closed or denied bank accounts uh, or delay wire transfer for clients perceived as being vulnerable to terrorist financing abuse, leading to what is known the global trend of de-risking. Banks apply a blanket de-risking approach instead of focused and uh, proportionate measures in line with the, uh, the risk-based approach. This has undermined effort for inclusive development, financial inclusion, human rights protection, and the creation of an enabling and conducive environment for civil society. Today's studies examine the magnitude of de-risking and how widespread this problem is. It present, they present an evidence-based research beyond anecdotal on the implication of de-risking on NPO's effort to perform efficiently and undertake effective actions of assisting um, affected population in a humanitarian emergency, such as the case in Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. The proposed way forward emphasizes the need for inclusive dialogue among all stakeholders in search of common grounds and solutions. We are honored to have with us our esteemed and well-informed panel to delve deeply into the study key, key findings and recommendations, and to discuss the trend of de-risking from different perspectives. Before we proceed with our panel discussion, I would like to introduce Andrea Hall. Andrea is Policy Counsel at the Charity and Security Network. She is an attorney with more than a decade of experience as a writer, and editor. She coordinates the Charity and Security Network advocacy work in Congress and the US administration. She monitors and reports on security related development impacting nonprofits. Andrea holds a BA in communication from Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, and JD from the University of Richmond. Please join me in welcoming Andrea to the podium. Advocacy. The Quad has been working in the field of social development for more than 14 years, 
designing and delivering programs in education, health, and livelihoods. He has also worked in preventing violent, violent extremism programs and peace building through mentoring and leadership projects for youth, promoting change through civic activism. Rawad is going to give us a little background on the reports and some context for the discussion today. Thank you. So we'll start again. Right, so on behalf of the Humanitarian Forum, um, I'd like to welcome you all, those in the room and online, uh, for joining us uh, today. Um, before I share the history and the context as to how we came to be here today, um, I'd like to say a few words of thanks to our partners. Uh, firstly, CSIS for hosting us today, uh, the Charity and Security Network for organizing uh, this meeting, and several others that we'll be having over the next two days with policymakers uh, at Capitol Hill. Um, and also uh, Interaction, who are uh, on the steering committee. And of course, our research partners, uh, the Humanitarian Policy Group at the Overseas Development Institute in London and the London School of Economics and Political Science. And Stuart is here today to share some of the research findings. Uh, and more importantly, if I may say, a major thank you to Islamic Relief uh, USA and the Islamic Relief uh, family, who have not only just supported this event, but the project uh, right from the outset. So uh, a big thank you to, to Islamic Relief as well and all our local and national NGOs who have taken part in the research and the participants. And so turning back about four years now, January 2014, when uh, in preparation for the first United Nations World Humanitarian Summit in, in 2016, we led a number of consultations, 39 consultations in 35 countries across the globe, from America to Europe, Africa, Middle East, and Central and South Asia. Um, and really, what came out of those consultations, a number of issues, as you can imagine, uh, from local and national NGOs in particular, and that was around, uh, one of those issues was around de-risking. So accessing financial services, uh, delays in wire transfers, money transfers from donor to uh, recipient. And so we decided to uh, launch the de-risking research project. And then uh, in 2016, at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, we held a side event on de-risking, and it was at that side event that um, a challenge was put on the table, that a lot of the evidence coming forward was anecdotal. Uh, and so we took on that challenge to provide and, and contribute to the existing research and look at sort of case studies of the impact of de-risking on NGO activities and, by extension, the beneficiaries that they serve. And so uh, last year, we commissioned the Overseas Development Institute in London and partnered with the London School of Economics to carry out some case studies particularly in conflict zones, um, in crisis zones. 
And so a series of country case studies came out, and um, Stuart today will be sharing some of those uh, case studies and findings. And essentially, the, the key message for us um, as humanitarians uh, is that we're all here for the same reason, I imagine. Whether you're wearing a policy hat on, uh, you know, a banker's hat on, um, or even a humanitarian hat on, it's to save lives. And that's what we're here to do. And uh, essentially, what we're finding is that the stringent legislations um, and the uh, continuous sort of requirements to meet uh, different needs and changing uh, legislation and requirements actually risks lives and in worst case scenarios um, takes lives. So what we want to do is we want to work together with policymakers and we're here to continue the conversations that are happening outside this room and take those forward to work together to ensure that uh, we continue to save uh, lives, uh, particularly in those uh, affected regions in conflicts and crises. So uh, finally, uh, again, thank you to all of you for joining us today, CSIS for hosting us, and uh, we look forward to a fruitful discussion uh, today inside this room and beyond. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Rawad, for setting the stage for our panel discussions. Um, a quick note on our program, it will be uh, webcast, um, so when it comes, it's important when it's uh, the time for Q&A uh, to say um, you state your uh, name and um, uh, affiliation. Um, how we would go about it? Uh, um, Stuart will present on the key um, uh, findings and recommendation of the case studies as outlined by Rawad. And then we will engage in conversation with Stuart and Tracy on these issues, um, how it's in, in terms of the implication and impact of de-risking and um, as from the perspective of these case, case studies, <coughs> excuse me, and beyond that. Um, allow me to introduce Stuart and Tracy before we start the discussion. Uh, Stuart is a member of the Department of International Development at the LSE and a research fellow at the Chatham House Global Health Security Program. He specializes in the politics of humanitarianism and conflict and uh, focuses on the roles of institution in complex emergencies. He has written widely on two broad themes, humanitarian governance and the evolution of global humanitarian regimes and the institution that emerged during situation of armed conflict and their impact on civilian populations. During 2003, he was the operation director for the Iraq Humanitarian Operations Center in Baghdad. Tracy Durner is a senior analyst for the Global Center. She specializes in financial inclusion issues, including anti-money laundering and counter uh, countering the finances, uh, financing of terrorism and bank de-risking, focusing on the Greater Horn of Africa region in particular. She has co-authored and contributed to reports on countering violent extremism as, and on the anti-money laundering and countering the finances of tourism topics and assisted in the design and implementation of regional capacity building programs. She holds a BA in International Affairs and Political Science from Northern Eastern University. 
With that, let's start with the presentation of Stuart on the uh, case studies with their key findings and recommendation. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you very much uh, for the generous uh, uh, introduction and also for the um, uh, for the invite to speak here as well. Um, I'm going to talk on. Um, the case studies that ODI and the LSE um, have produced. But I'm going to focus primarily on the Syrian case study, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Um, I'm looking at uh, the phenomenon of de-risking. Um, and it's a, a very simple idea, um, as all of you will know. Um, it's the idea that counter-terrorist financing legislation was intended to prevent the abuse of non-governmental uh, uh, organizations uh, by prescribed organizations. The simple idea was that um, clean money would get through to the right places and um, uh, dirty money would, would be halted by financial institutions placed at the forefront of global geopolitical uh, and security strategies. The idea was um, quite simple, that banks would be able to block um, organisations that fail to uphold standards from having bank accounts and also uh, would be able to block the transfer of money uh, to um, uh, these prescribed routes. So it's quite simple. Banks were expected to withhold bank accounts from the wrong organisations and block financial transfers that um, ultimately risked going to the wrong places. But what we've seen instead of this um, uh, idea of a proportionate and risk-based system is we've seen a system that lacks proportion and doesn't take into account specific risks that humanitarian organisations face in conflict situations, in particular in Syria. And the result has been um, a widespread um, closure of uh, NGO bank accounts, but also um, significant delays and blockages to financial transfers across the humanitarian marketplace. So extremely well-known organizations, household names in the humanitarian community, have found that their uh, financial transfers have been blocked in incredibly unpredictable ways with little information. There's also a problem that it's in incredibly difficult for these organizations. Yeah. It's all right. I'm not moving them yet. <laughs> it's also incredibly difficult um, for, uh, uh, for the... Um, for the, uh, the non-governmental organizations to be able to um, identify how to comply with what the banks require in terms of risk management. And the thresholds for compliance, the compliance standards themselves, appear to be uh, unpredictable and also um, very, very challenging to actually sit down with the banks and work out precisely what is required to prevent uh, money transfers uh, from being blocked. So what we did was we, um, in Syria uh, in particular, uh, we, we looked at organisations working out of Turkey, uh, in Syria, from Lebanon, and also banks and humanitarian organisations based in several European capitals, in particular London. We surveyed about 300 different organisations in roundtables and with a substantial set of interviews as well, um, over, over 75 interviews with humanitarian and, uh, and bank staff. 
One of the big questions that we faced, particularly from um, policymakers across Europe, was why isn't there objective evidence? Why is everything so anecdotal? And that made us think very carefully about why was it that most humanitarian organizations were talking about how challenging this was, yet the evidence didn't appear to be um, uh, available in a form that policymakers could take seriously. So we looked at precisely why that was, and we found that actually the political economy of uh, humanitarian access to finance was driven by, uh, by perceptions of risk and what putting, this money, uh, put the, putting these problems into the public domain, would, uh, how that would impact on those organizations. So, for example, we found that they were incredibly sensitive about their own uh, their own reputations. Um, and the reputations were incredibly fragile. Um, in one sense, they had to maintain um, a sense that they had a comparative advantage over other um, uh, uh, humanitarian organizations, an ability to reach the most difficult places, spend money quickly, and in accordance with professional and donor priorities. They were also terrified that by being mentioned as being exposed to risk, uh, being linked in some way to areas under the control of prescribed organization, to having the almost inevitable diversion of some commodities in a conflict environment, that would mean that they would be mentioned in very negative ways on the media. And this would be picked up by uh, organizations such as Thomson Reuters World Check, and they would be logged on um, uh, the databases that were used rather automatically by banks in their due diligence process. So the real risk was any form of mention that triggered listing on some of these databases and the way in which banks were using that information uh, out of context without sufficient investigation. They also faced um, tremendous pressures to spend, both from donors and internally. And if they publicly announced that there was a systematic problem in spending money in certain areas, the programs were felt to suffer. They were also in competition with other NGOs. Um, and also, there was an individual pressure to perform. And the result was that these reputational threats, the pressures to spend money, the pressure to demonstrate both individual and organizational comparative advantages, um, meant um, that uh, humanitarian organizations were increasingly forced in their public stances to give a message that was positive whilst recognizing the serious challenges and needing regulatory change and support from policymakers. So the information market economy was enormously problematic for them. And this explains why donors were failing to get the kind of systematic information that they needed. We found as well that there were a number of processes that this resulted in. Um, and I'm going to talk about these in, uh, in brief detail. Um, three in particular. One is the way in which banks adopted what we would describe as a precautionary approach. And I'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a moment. And this was echoed by the NGO, it's the non-governmental organization. I'll talk about that in a moment. The second was the way in which a perfectly rational regulatory policy created unintended, unanticipated consequences in terms of reaching the most vulnerable communities. And thirdly, the impact on uh, the governance of the humanitarian sector and how these 
really were part of a counterproductive um, uh, uh, regime. So let's begin with the first of those, then, the precautionary approach. Um, banks were faced with a real dilemma. They didn't know precisely how much risk they could carry in dealing with non-governmental organisations before they would trigger concerns from the regulator. They also faced multiple regulatory frameworks across the global uh, system, and they also faced multiple regulators within the, the United States. And the result was that they had to create systems that reflected a kind of universal level of risk. So they looked at the highest common denominator, uh, the regulatory system that was most punishing, and they tended to reflect that in their regulatory processes within the bank. Um, the risk for them was having a non-governmental organization that had money diverted to a terrorist organization, and that undermined the reputation of the bank. And that would have potentially significant consequences for individual bankers who faced strict liability clauses in particularly US legislation. So the result was that they began to see the risk as very difficult to measure, and therefore, they would be incredibly conservative in their responses to non-governmental organizations working in the most challenging of environments. And precisely the same effects were spotted with non-governmental organizations. So they felt that the banks didn't know what level of risk and compliance was, uh, uh, was acceptable. And they therefore also needed to be extremely cautious, mentioning publicly that they had had any form of diversion of money or of commodities or they had critical uh, media um, would have led to reputational vulnerability, which would have further led to bank closures of their accounts and problems with correspondent banks. And that would have had an existential consequence for the NGO. It would have closed. So many of the more vulnerable organizations began to behave in much more conservative ways. And that meant avoiding areas where there was reputational risk or the banks would feel that the level of risk of humanitarian programs in those areas was excessive. The unanticipated consequences then. Let's um, have a quick look uh, at um, those. We found three, and these were common really across the case studies. Geographical areas differentiated and some excluded. What it meant was if you had two programs, one of which contained a higher risk of prescribed organizations being able to gain some benefit, legitimacy or um, diversion, and another program that was in um, uh, an area where that risk was reduced and therefore um, uh, was more likely uh, to avoid reputational risks and therefore bank de-risking, in those areas, you would gravitate towards the more conservative programming choices. So anything that could reduce the risks that banks felt your programs were under, there would be a preference for that. That didn't mean there was a mass stampede towards areas that weren't under control of prescribed organizations. It didn't mean that areas that were um, besieged or held hostage by ISIL or others would be completely denied any form of assistance. It didn't mean that at all. It meant that there was a strong preference that was impacting on choices and generally buffeting 
the humanitarian programs in a particular direction. It was like a ship um, becalmed with um, tides pushing them in a particular direction rather than them sort of starting their engine and moving totally and firmly in a, in a particular direction. But this influence was significant. And the conservative and pr unresponsive programming choices were difficult. If you had a livelihoods program in an area where there was a risk that the money would be blocked uh, for four to six months, or an orphan support program, and um, both of these are real examples mentioned in the case study, um, uh, an orphan support program where you couldn't guarantee monthly payments to sustain those populations, you would be more inclined to look for other forms of programs that carried less risk brought about by the challenges within the financial system. So NGOs have always chased money. They've always been under that pressure. But now what they were finding is that they were conditioned to programs that had less reputational risks to the banks, and they were also in areas where the chances are the blockages of money, which could be four to six months, completely unpredictable, would have less impact. So what we were seeing was commodities preferred over cash, we were seeing communities that were in more stable areas with less contact with prescribed organizations being favored. We were seeing programs that re relied on timely transfers of cash being replaced by other programs that were less vulnerable to cash blockages. So the result of this is that the most vulnerable communities were the least well served because of pressures that were new and resulting from bank de-risking. And these pressures were more significant because the international community relied on largely Islamic organizations, often Syrian-based or Syrian-populated. Um, and these organizations were in the last mile of delivery. So whereas Western-based INGOs might find that this problem affected them less because of their reliance on these uh, domestic NGOs and uh, non-governmental organizations, the pressures were felt systemically throughout the system. So what did we find? We found um, a regime that appeared to be um, counterproductive. The original regime for countering terrorist financing was intended to both block money that was going to um, prescribed organizations and to facilitate and support humanitarian efforts in fragile and conflict states areas. But what we were finding is that most organizations were finding it very difficult to move money through the formal financial system, and particularly in Syria, they were moving towards informal transfers through the Hawala system, which was largely, almost completely, unregulated. So the result was money was actually moving into less um, uh, uh, visible channels and was less accountable and less regulated. We also found that the idea to maintain the humanitarian system was extremely difficult. Non-governmental organizations were struggling uh, to uh, manage the compliance risk. They were struggling to identify how much risk would be tolerated by banks, and they were behaving in a very precautionary way. So the result was that you had um, extremely conservative humanitarian choices as well. So both the um, counter-terrorist financing objective and 
the humanitarian objectives were, um, were being challenged by this system. And I describe this in, in one of the reports as market failure, where the regulators, the banks, and the non-governmental organizations are behaving perfectly rationally, and yet the system is failing to achieve the objectives that were intended. Um, we, so we found that the um, last mile effect, uh, the distortion of that last mile of deliverers and their priorities was having a systemic effect. We found that the original Financial Action Task Force's priorities of maintaining both counter-terrorist financing legislation and a humanitarian system were being undermined. And we also found that the legislation was allowing um, neighboring states to significantly manipulate um, the ways in which humanitarian assistance was being delivered. So what are our recommendations? Well, our recommendations are all in the report, and they're a fascinating read. Uh, so I'd recommend that you have a look at those. And I'm going to bring out just a, uh, just a couple of those. Um, what we, what we suggest is that um, we try and identify how much risk in the system is tolerated by regulators and banks and what systems count as acceptable and the norm. So we suggest uh, a compliance and transparency code of conduct agreed between the Financial Action Task Force, non-governmental organizations, and the banks themselves. We've also suggested uh, an international humanitarian financial clearing system as well. Correspondent banks are great, but where the system doesn't necessarily work and needs more support because the market cannot generate acceptable solutions, then that system needs to be put in place. Um, the fact that so much money is being driven through unofficial, untransparent channels needs to be recognized, not to try and close those down because that would be an impossibility in regulatory terms, but to try and create, um, uh, to look at creative systems for more regulation of uh, Hawala systems that would allow them to function. They're absolutely vital systems. They're essential to trade. They're essential to uh, development but also trying to balance these twin objectives of managing um, the risk of financial diversion towards prescribed organizations and also uh, managing the need to facilitate humanitarian access to financial instruments. And also, we think that the, there are two other very small um, but very, very significant um, uh, suggestions for US policymakers in particular, clearer and more consistent regulatory guidance across national jurisdictions, especially where there are multiple regulators. And secondly, a revision of the bank examination manual to ensure that we have a more proportionate and risk-based approach with a better sense of what the regulatory standards are to make them more predictable for both banks and for the humanitarian sector. So that brings me neatly to the other case studies. Um, I don't have time to go into those, so I'm going to slope shoulder on those ones straight away. And I'm going to recommend, in particular, the first of them to come out so far, which is Shireen Al-Tarablusi, who unfortunately couldn't be with us uh, today, uh, and Camilla Simati from the, um, uh, uh, from the LSE. Counterterrorism, de-risking the humanitarian response in Yemen, a call for action. It's a, a great report, uh, and I really would suggest that you, you have a look at it. Um, but the findings and the recommendations are drawn from all of the case studies that are written or under production. And that brings me neatly to... <laughs>
Well, terrific. Thank you very much, Stuart. Um, you outline in throughout your presentation the um, the that it is increasingly difficult for nonprofit to continue to transfer money through the formal channels um, and to continue at the same time that they wanted to continue to respond effectively to the most affected population. Uh, you touch upon that in your presentation, but I would like to have more of uh, your thoughts on when this money moves into more opaque channels, what are the implications for the counter-terrorism, um, the financing of terrorism regime that were designed to keep the money out of the hands of terrorist groups? The, the problem is that the, um, the legislation, there are two factors really. One is the legislation itself has, uh, has had this set of unintended consequences. And the second problem is that in many fragile and conflict-affected states, there is a very limited formal banking system. So it's extremely difficult to move the money from um, a donor state such as Germany, for example, straight through to northern Syria. The lack of um, uh, any form of banks in northern Syria, uh, for example, make that movement very, very difficult. So the result is that there will always have to be some cross-border movement. And the choice is either to take cash physically, and in a conflict zone that's incredibly dangerous, but it's still done, and it's done very regularly in many conflict areas by even the largest um, organizations as an absolute last resort, but it is inevitable. Um, or you can use a safer system for those organizations, which is to try and transfer it through the informal Hawala banking system, which is this sort of trust system uh, that operates in, uh, in many countries. Um, the, the problem um, that was discovered uh, in Yemen in particular, but also in Syria, is that those Hawala systems become penetrated by groups that are connected to the, um, uh, the conflict itself. So there is a risk that unless you start to look creatively at what is an inevitable um, reaction on the uh, uh, part of nonprofits uh, working those environments, then you are going to move money through these, um, these uh, through some systems which can be abused, and that means that between five and ten uh, percent of the money will be going to uh, to groups that you would perhaps prefer it not to, and then you can't trace it. But there are a lot of Hawala systems that work extremely well, are unconnected. Uh, to any of these, um, these prescribed organizations. Um, they're fast, they're efficient, uh, they are an extremely valuable response. So Hawala is both vital if you wish to maintain a population um, uh, that's extremely vulnerable, um, to prevent it being um, supported by um, uh, extremist groups that will often try and step in when there's a vacuum of the state or humanitarian organizations, and will then be able to um, gain influence and legitimacy within those communities. So if you want to maintain um, the, uh, the, the influence that you have uh, allowing those communities to continue uh, and to survive, you really need to think very carefully about how you engage with Hawala. So a knee-jerk response that outlaws it or bans it um, and doesn't recognize its value is, is, 
never going to work. Um, but if you don't accept it, you need to think very carefully about which are the channels that might be legitimate and allow you to balance both of these security objectives, uh, maintaining population's independence from uh, radical groups and also being able to uh, uh, deliver on your humanitarian um, uh, obligations and, uh, and expectations. Well, that's lead me to this. My second question to you is, in this study, um, you mentioned particularly the case in Syria, the negative impact of de-risking is very obvious on the population. Um, organization opting for scaling down into their programs, um, stopping their programs, um, not reaching, it's more in terms of um, like scaling down their um, humanitarian response. Um, can you comment on the concept of humanitarian vacuum uh, and what might, this might mean for policymakers here, particularly like policymakers around the world and the U.S. here? Yeah. Um, we, we started talking about the idea of a humanitarian vacuum because um, whilst it's extremely difficult in a conflict situation, particularly the type that we've seen in Syria, but, but elsewhere as well, Somalia, Yemen, um, it's, it's extremely difficult to reach commu some communities. Um, if you don't respond to those communities, you make them more vulnerable to radicalization or elements of that population being made more vulnerable to radicalization. And we've seen lots and lots of examples of um, where um, organizations connected to radical um, prescribed organizations have taken advantage of natural disasters or conflicts. So we've seen in Pakistan in uh, uh, 2010, in the uh, Kashmir earthquakes in 2005, following the tsunami, we've seen radical groups trying to engage in uh, uh, programs of assistance to very vulnerable communities. So in those situations, if you make it extremely difficult for legitimate, well-run humanitarian organizations to access finance in ways that allow them to reach those communities, you expose them to these more radicalized elements. And that's got to be an incredibly bad thing for security policy. Um, you're not simply going to be able to create a security policy based largely on kinetic and defense strategies. You need to think very carefully about the political economy of influence uh, that these communities face. Now, that's not a, not a, uh, a suggestion that you use humanitarian assistance as a soft power tool of diplomacy, but it is a recognition that humanitarian assistance can have a significant impact on sustaining communities that might otherwise uh, uh, become um, more vulnerable to this uh, abuse. So I'm not suggesting for a moment instrumentalization of assistance. What I am saying is that needs-based impartial assistance with the transaction costs uh, balanced between security uh, needs and humanitarian needs, that assistance can have positive security and strat strategic effects. And you outline in the end of your presentation key recommendation. Which one of these recommendations you think it's, um, could be achievable um, and how can it be done? What's your thought on how we can make it achievable? Well, the, we, we, we've given a sort of um, tapas board of, uh, uh, of recommendations, so um, hopefully there's something in there for, for everybody. Um, we did feel that um, the 
um, uh, the banking um, regulator's handbook was um, uh, very much a sort of low-hanging low fruit, very easy to achieve, uh, very easy to create a proportionate risk-based approach with common standards and feed that into the blood system of, uh, of national regulators, particularly in the United States. Um, but what we also thought, um, and probably more significant, was for um, a, a, an attempt to create um, a code of conduct on compliance and transparency, which was accepted by FATF, uh, which banks bought into, and which was well communicated with humanitarian organizations. And that would set uh, a more objective, um, more transparent set of standards, which would take the unpredictability out of the system. I think the difficulty is that a lot of humanitarian organizations see the same bank blocking the same financial transfers or letting them through in completely unpredictable ways. So we found numerous, numerous cases um, where the same bank one week would block $50,000, the next week would let it through and nothing had changed. And then the following week um, it, would, it would block it again. And again, nothing had changed. So even within the, the banking um, system, there seems to be enormous latitude in assessing risk. And that's made worse by regulators who have passed on any sense of assessing risk to the banking community. So the burden of assessing risk trickles downwards. The knowledge at the bottom level is so insufficient that there is overcompensation as a result. So being able to set more objective standards would, would seem to be a neat way uh, of trying to balance um, what don't need to be totally competing demands. National security demands to limit the, um, uh, the transfer of money to prescribed organizations are, are, are absolutely valuable. Um, but so is maintaining a humanitarian system that is able to reach the most vulnerable. And it's a question of, of, of making risk calculable rather than making risk um, mysterious, unpredictable, and uh, like the boogeyman in the night, it can strike you at any occasion and you can't see it coming. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Let me turn to Tracy and to touch upon, to get your perspective on these, the case studies, um, key findings and the recommendation, and what's their implication on the policymakers here in the US. Sure. Uh, thank you all for joining us today and to my fellow speakers and to CSIS for hosting us today. Um, I want to draw, you know, reflecting on these case studies and other emerging research, I want to pick up on kind of five problem areas that I think uh, are spaces for responses. And the first is really one of perception. I think in conflict zones and in other developing economies, we need to recognize that these informal systems really are the formal financial system. And I think understanding that and accepting the centrality of those systems is kind of the key starting point for the discussion on financial access. Right now, you're seeing an overemphasis on regulation of the formal system and a drive to bring these systems into those formal structures. Um, but that just doesn't align with the realities and the context, particularly in conflict zones. You have places where there is low bank penetration rates, where security or even weather concerns make it impossible to access these structures and layer that on top of some social and cultural approaches where there's no trust in government institutions. There isn't a climate of banking. Um, so rather than trying to change that, we need to focus on really how we maximize the benefits of these organic systems. 
To give kind of a parallel example, uh, we're not investing in building land phone lines across the world anymore. We've all moved to cellular platforms and towers. And we use that as a starting point from which we build new technologies, new platforms, and structures. And we need to do the same for the informal financial system. We need to stop treating it as something that is external or different or risky and bring it into the fold and use that moving forward for more comprehensive approaches. Uh, the second challenge that we see, and one that you just mentioned as well, is, is an information gap. You know, you talk about the arbitrary and often unpredictable nature of when these transactions will be halted or stopped. And if we're going to fix the system, then we need to understand where and how it's breaking. And I agree that there's a need for additional clarity in regulation, but I also think we can come at it from the other side. So regulators can work with the banks to either mandate or encourage that information be given about when those transactions were halted, what the criteria was, whether it was the correspondent bank or the recipient bank, and to kind of clear up that information gap. Um, there's also the potential for them to offer measures of redress. So a complaint board where when you get a transaction halted, you have a third party that you can go to and to ask for and mediate for more information. And I think these measures demand the same levels of accountability and transparency from the financial institutions that we're demanding from their clients. We're asking them to say why and how and to help us understand what we can do to facilitate those transactions. Another area would be uh, an understanding of risk. Risk is central to money laundering and terrorist financing assessments, but the concept is, is really not well understood or worse, misinterpreted. I think right now it's traditionally based on assessments of internal vulnerabilities and external threats. And those come together to look at really macro level assessments, jurisdictional risks, sectoral risks, but often at that point, individuals and clients are getting screened out before we ever get to looking at their core institutional practices. The system is just focused at too high a level to really account for the nuance and complex factors that exist. The, the systems are just inadequate. Um, governments are usually called upon to address this gap, and it's traditionally approached from a policy perspective, clarification on the risk-based approach. Um, there's definitely a need for this, certainly a logic for it, but I think we also need to recognize that it's an unattractive proposal for governments and regulators. It's really political, it's very complex, and it's difficult for them to, at that macro level, really identify and deal with the nuance of risk in a variety of contexts. So they're reluctant to do so, and right now you're seeing that. You're seeing slight clarifications, but no real meaningful movement. I think we need to look at other ways that we can address this, and that might be coming at it from a more niche banking perspective. Having governments that support or incentivize the development of specific modules, whether that's a correspondent bank that works only in conflict zones, whether it's a bank that focuses exclusively on money transfer services in Hualas, but a system that would allow for them to develop a more nuanced and context-specific reflection of what risk means. The fourth gap that I want to talk about uh, is one of incentive. Why do banks, why should they continue to engage with these clients? It's a lot of risk and a low profitability. Governments can't compel them to. Uh, it's just not in the nature of the system. But they can certainly find a way to incentivize doing so. This can be positive incentives, tax breaks, you know, other kind of positive benefits, or it can be more of a stick approach where you get fined or penalized for not engaging with particular sectors. There are examples of this, and particularly drawing from diversity cases. 
so compelling banks to issue mortgage loans in low-risk or low-income areas. Uh, and there are lessons to be learned from how you can go about incentivizing a financial bit to what is, in essence, a social good. Um, but banks aren't the only ones that need to be incentivized here. Our governments need to be as well. They need a reason to wade into these murky political and complex waters. Um, and that includes from a foreign policy standpoint, as well as from an internal domestic and regulatory standpoint. And then the last one that I want to mention is the challenge of time. I think the humanitarian crises are urgent, they're pressing, they're dramatic headlines, um, and they need immediate action. But solutions are going to be more long-term, and I think we need to accept that. And regulators and governments need to develop a dual-track approach. We need to have an immediate crisis response, but also a longer-term program. And that's going to require developing regulatory frameworks, but also developing capacities. It's going to take time to make sure that those policy frameworks are implemented. And there's also a need for trust building, even in places where compliance structures do exist. If those two actors don't trust that those systems are in place, the risk perceptions go up higher and higher. And that also needs to be paired with efforts to address matters of good governance and general strength of institutions in these places. And finally, we need a learning process. I think there are a number of case studies and small-scale examples, but studies that have emerged that look at what have been the lessons learned and how have we maintained financial access is an area where studies like yours, I think, are particularly important. And it's, as you, like, let me pick on the last sentence you mentioned. It's well established, the impact of the um, de-risking on a humanitarian response is well established, well recognized. To what extent do these negative impacts resonate with financial institution on one hand and policymakers on the other hand? Um, in short, I don't think they do. Um, and I know that that is really difficult to say, particularly for our folks in the humanitarian and NGO space. How do you not care about these crises? Um, and I think the individuals in the institutions do, but it's such a large matrix and such a big bureaucracy that there isn't a way to really fit those perceptions and those fears into what is at its core a profit-driven model beholden to kind of stakeholders. Um, I sat in an ACAMS conference in Las Vegas and they literally put up on a slide, you know, why do we care about de-risking? And it, it definitely seems cold, but I, I do think there is a legitimate question to be asked. Banks are being forced to take on a law enforcement mechanism, and now they're also being asked to take on a social good model. And I think it's fair to say, you know, are these institutions best placed to address these types of challenges, or are there models that are built around social good that could be better used to kind of fill that immediate urgency gap? Maybe not the long-term challenge, but that immediate response. Places like the World Bank, the IMF, the UN, um, that said, in the long term, we do need to get financial institutions and regulators on board. And to do that, I think we need to consider how we're framing our message and better align it to the incentives that do exist for these actors. One option for banks is a corporate social responsibility angle. You've seen a big uptick in that language over the last few years. Just walk into Starbucks, everything's free and fair <laughs> trade. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's attracting clients. The challenge here is that, you know, I think it's just as easy for banks to have their foundation arm come forward and give a donation, do a big splashy PR campaign, and they're getting the same benefits, 
without absorbing all of that risk that they're going to have to take in changing their business model and being beholden to stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So we need to find other areas that would, would incentivize them, that aligns with what their core structures are. That can be things like free and fair trade. It can be things like uh, you know, foreign direct investment channels. And there are also other actors that we would need to bring on board. You touch rightly upon, I think, the linkages to the security networks and the preventing violent extremism agenda. Financial inclusion can help with those efforts. It can help address some of those underlying causes of violent extremism. So I think in general, the humanitarian argument needs to exist. It needs to be out there, visible, and vocal. Um, But it can't be the only message that we're standing on because that is not integrated and reflective of the audience we're trying to influence. And there, throughout the rhetoric coming or discourse coming, there is um, always um, seeing the inclusions, uh, financial inclu- inclusion for nonprofits and national security objective they don't meet. It's is it a either or problem, or is there any way of? or solution, finding a common ground where these two imperatives can work? I feel very strongly that anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism should be seen as mutually beneficial to financial inclusion. I think there is uh, value in addressing some of the financial and social economic development issues and promoting and preventing violent, preventing, not promoting violent <laughs> extremism. Um, You know, it addresses issues of corruption and economic justice that, again, contribute to broader goals of of development and violence prevention. Um, But they are traditionally seen as competitive interests. And I think that's in part because the actors are not speaking the same language and they're operating in silos. So in my work, I wear both an anti-money laundering hat and I work with financial intelligence units across Africa, but I also work on countering violent extremism. And very rarely do my two worlds ever meet. Uh, even when I go to a conference on either of the topics, they hear that I work on the others, and it's, it's blank faces. Um, and I think that's a challenge. I think that we need to find a common language. And most importantly, we need to integrate financial inclusion as a toolbox in the fight against countering terrorism. Um, right now, that really isn't happening. To do that, that means linking financial inclusion to broader socioeconomic and development goals, mm-hmm. um, particularly for the the recipient jurisdictions, it's often linking that to economic development, foreign direct investment, incentivizing them to prioritize money laundering and terrorist financing fights. Um, And it's also calibrating the role that we give to banks. Right now we're asking them to serve both a preventative to protect their systems, but also a law enforcement mandate. And I think we need to recognize where their strengths are and to promote banks as a source of information they can trace money, financial flows, and accountability. We can use that to identify and expand networks. And right now we're focusing on kind of shutting them out of the system rather than using those, those structures to help expand and investigate terrorist financing more effectively. And Stuart mentioned the market failure. And in your area, uh, earlier research, you talked about, uh, um, like, um, you deemed de-risking is a market failure. Do you still believe that it is a market failure requiring government interventions? And what would this intervention would look like? I do. I do think that all of the actors, as you rightly said, they're acting rationally. They're doing what's in their best interest. And um, the outcomes are just not working for the system. And I think that reflects 
a system that isn't designed for this type of, of context. When we first started this research, we heard the same thing. It's all anecdotal, you know, there isn't any data, and there's been huge steps forward in that process. You've seen case studies like this, you've seen studies by Charity and Security Network, the World Bank. Um, so that data is out there, and what you have seen is a shift in rhetoric. So now, more commonly, the FATF, Financial Action Task Force, all of the regulators are admitting de-risking is a problem. Um, but they're still defining it as a misappropriation of the risk-based approach. And they're not really wading into or taking responsibility for moving the actions forward. We're still kind of in a hot potato situation where everybody is passing the buck around a little bit. Um, and I think to do that, we need to really look at what the core of the issue is from a market standpoint. And that would be that there's too much risk and too little reward to bank these clients. And so instead of, there's policy is certainly an aspect of that, clarifying and responding to, but there are other incentive factors that need to happen. That's, we talked a bit about it, but there's trust building, there's garnering more information, uh, and then there's the development of more nuanced understandings of risk or reporting systems. It's possible that you know, we design a way for banks to prove they're being compliant, which doesn't require them to shut out all of these clients whole scale. That can be tiered reporting, uh, SDRs, for example. And I promise this is, will be my last <laughs> follow-up question. I know I have uh, 10 more, but I will limit them before turning to the um, question of the audience. We talked about the negative impact. Do we have any examples of where uh, and how these financial access challenges being addressed? Mm -hmm. There are parallel studies. I think right now the challenge is that the groups that have experienced this, uh, to your point, don't want to come forward. They don't want to share successes or failures because it's risky, it's vulnerable. But there are cases in other areas where you've seen similar challenges be addressed. There was a closure of embassy banking accounts a while ago, um, and there was required the Secretary of State to step in and, and to integrate that into a foreign policy structure. Um, there is a huge focus right now on blockchain digital currencies. There's an economic incentive there for people to want to find a way to bank these clients because they're going to make money. There's a long history of dealing with cash transfers and economic and financial access in disaster zones. Those have similar parallels in that crisis zones might not have electricity, they might not have access to these structures. How have we responded there in delivering services? Um, you're also seeing a bunch of uh, focus on refugees now and a move towards biometric identification as a vetting process. Certainly challenges inherent in that. Um, can't say that it's necessarily mm -hmm. the, the be all end all kind of across these, but there are ways to reflect at a more macro level and see what are the, the leverage points? What are the things that are getting change to happen? And how do we integrate that into the de-risking discussion? How do we find that right message for the right audience? Great. Um, let me open the floor for Q&A. We will take uh, a group of three questions. My colleagues will circulate the mic. Please state your name and affiliation, and please have a concise and short question. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for your presentation. My name is Rosemary Segera. I'm a, a president of a nonprofit and a profit organization. First of all, uh, looking at nonprofit, nonprofits are never 
in collaboration with the big organization and they have never sat on the table the cpos the non-profit which too much work in the on the ground with the humanitarian how do they come together and collaborate with the policy makers I, I come here all the time to listen to this policy makers actual people on the ground and everybody because they know a lot and since they know a lot they are left behind the people who sit on the table are big guys like you the small ones are left behind and they are the victims who are beaten taken to jail and even killed because of transparency and advocating for this but my question is, looking at financing, now we are looking at fintech, as you say, blockchain. I was at the World Bank annual spring meetings and my session was on fintech, blockchain and all this. These are smart guys who are more smarter than anybody else. They have shifted to fintech. They have shifted to blockchain, how, which is not regulated. So how do you know this is a terrorist who is getting the money? Because everybody's smart. They are professionals, they are terrorism, and they, the big guys, only people who are not smart are the civil society, who are CPOs and NGOs because they don't have the capability. So how do we make this happen? Looking at the actual policy into financial system, fintech, blockchain, laptech, and all this. This is where the smart guys are going and still doing the same and more smart as well. How do you, as professionals, know this is guys, terrorism, or... Because they are out there looking at what are we doing. So how do we collaborate with civil society, NGOs like mine? And the film take themselves because they won't tell you anything. So thank you so much. How do you make this regulatory? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any other question on... Hi, my name is Luther with Search for Common Ground. Um, I just had a quick question. I mean, I, I really appreciate the, the kind of high-level view and then looking at policy and, and regulatory frameworks and set of recommendations is super helpful. I was also wondering if you had uh, maybe some words of advice for implementing NGOs that are in the field, you know, working in some of these risky contexts. How can we best kind of manage and you know, mitigate the downfalls of de-risking with the current setup? Um, you know, how, how can we make do until some of these, maybe this many recommendations starts to materialize? What, what can we do in the, in the here and now? Thank you very much. Any other questions? Okay. Let's start with bringing different parties or identifying um, uh, this group and the advice for the implementing NGOs. Okay. Okay. I'll go first this time. Um, okay, well, they're, they're, they're two wonderful questions, actually. Um, and in, in some ways, they're related. Um, the, the question is, how do you manage the uncertainty that's caused by smart guys uh, doing clever things in a system that creates unintended consequences? Um, so the first thing is, be careful of smart guys. I never trust those. Um, but what it, I suppose there are two issues that come out of it, which is, um, one, what are the expectations of the financial system in terms of uh, non-profits' management of their own activities? Um, how do they create uh, confidence that they have a professional approach that manages risk in an acceptable way? And the second problem is, we have a system that doesn't really set benchmarks for what that level of professionalism is. 
So those, those are the sort of two challenges. So uh, ultimately, it's, it's not uh, a problem that can be easily solved until there is some sort of objective definition of what those risks are. One of the problems that we found, for example, uh, with the Syrian case study, is that we, we, we did a very sort of quick comparison of two organizations. One was a, a Syrian organization that worked uh, both in Syria and in other Middle Eastern and North African countries. It had been going almost since the start of the Syrian crisis. It had substantial linkages with Western uh, uh, humanitarian organizations. So what we'd found uh, when we looked at their compliance systems is that the, the donor non-governmental organization had imposed its own standards of professionalization on that organization. So it was maintaining records for five years. It was engaging in due diligence with the Huala operators. It was trying to identify routes for money and for purchasing that would be acceptable to a bank. Um, so it, it was in effect seeing the compliance procedures of the, uh, in this case, a UK-based non-governmental organization trickling down into this Syrian organization. And it was having precisely the same problems as a brand new, much smaller Syrian organization that was having private money largely from the Middle East and private donors. Um, that organization was not conducting due diligence to the same level, and yet they were having precisely the same problems with correspondent banks and also with maintaining uh, the confidence of banks in the region that they were an acceptable risk. So what that told us was that um, the banks themselves were applying inconsistent standards often to the same transactions and were often having blanket decisions that were applying in a sort of universal way. And, and again, what it suggested was that banks were seeing this um, through market structure calculations. Um, so, for example, we came across some banks that said, um, we exited from providing services to this type of humanitarian organization in this conflict because we found that other banks had withdrawn, and that left us carrying more of the business, more exposed to regulatory risk than we were comfortable with. So rather than looking at the quality of the customer, they were looking upwards at the scale of the risk and their position with the marketplace and making a decision to, exit, uh, to not be the last to exit that market. So we're dealing with kind of systemic effects that are not controllable necessarily by the humanitarian community. And those decisions are predicated on the fact that people don't know how much risk is acceptable. So there's a lot that you can do to try and identify safe routes for money, commodities, uh, safe purchasing organizations. We're seeing uh, there, there are rumors, for example, that even USAID has identified Hawala operators that they feel are more acceptable than, uh, than other routes, although we still need to do some research and sort of track, track down that, uh, uh, that idea. We're seeing organizations, humanitarian organizations, identifying um, uh, logistics suppliers and partners on the ground, they're doing considerable due diligence on those organizations, and those are being deemed to be acceptable by some banks. Um, so that due diligence process can 
can be made to work, but it will never remove the, the fundamental level of unpredictability. And the problem for many of the humanitarian organizations is we, we came across numerous organizations, for example, that had gone through all of this due diligence procedure. Um, they were then having money blocked uh, in um, uh, particularly besieged areas. And within the besieged areas, because they weren't paying suppliers and partners, um, those uh, suppliers in particular would go to the local authorities who are often armed actors, who would then go to the humanitarian organization and say, pay up or ship out. Um, and were putting the frighteners on the humanitarian organization. So those unintended consequences still remain, um, but there is stuff that can be done, although it won't resolve the problem. No, I, I think you touch upon all the key points here in terms of um, what implementing NGOs on the ground can do. Unfortunately, the best bet is, is continue the work that you're doing. Continue to educate and capacity build local staff um, on what the requirements and regulations are and partner that with a marketing campaign. I mean, you need to have clear policies and procedures in place and you need to have a case that you make. Um, and bring that directly to the banks. Invest on who your case officer is or who that person is to try to build that personal relationship. It's not gonna solve the structural or systemic problems that exist, but it does get at some of that trust issues that I think are particularly critical uh, in demonstrating that these compliance practices are here and that we are more than just the macro level jurisdictional risk that exists. On bringing small and new actors to the table, I think it's a particular challenge um, for these voices to be heard in this space. I think there's definitely a need for more forums like this one, more multi-stakeholder dialogues where the practical challenges are heard, but it's again finding the right message for the right actors. I think you've seen a lot of upscale in, in the consequences of de-risking and we're starting to get a little bit of, of fatigue on that. Banks are starting to feel a little bit attacked um, and we need to find constructive ways to work together so we're, we're actually having a dialogue and not just talking at one another. No, I, I just wanted to, to, to come back. I, I agree yeah, with please. absolutely everything. Um, there's some, some great ideas in there. Um, I, well, the point I'd make is that there have always been tensions between um, head offices and field staff um, where the, the need for kind of professional bureaucratic standards comes down very firmly from the head office and the field staff are talking about bureaucracy and red tape and this standing in the way of, uh, of reaching and saving uh, beleaguered communities. So there have always been tensions and what we found is that this tension has added to it. Um, so there is a need for head offices and um, field staff uh, to engage in training and to engage um, in mutual dialogue as well. What does concern me though is, um, is, is the effect that might have on humanitarian programming choices. So for example, we found a number of uh, humanitarian organizations that were dealing with communities that were besieged in parts of Syria um, and the humanitarian organization was able to reach into those besieged enclaves because they had known suppliers and they had uh, hawala operators that were kind of far more transparent than in other areas. Once that community and that kind of political stability of sorts 
had dissolved as the front line shifted and populations moved and you had new communities who'd been driven out of an area that was starving on a hillside and freezing cold. Once those people presented themselves, a number of humanitarian organizations said, well, you know, I could reach them, but the trouble is I haven't done due diligence on the, the Hawala operators in that area or the people that can supply me with um, the items that I need for those communities. So I'd rather not risk the existence of my organization by engaging in that behavior. Um, others would say, and these were quite rare, uh, but they would become far less transparent, mm -hmm. but they were risking their capacity to, to actually exist as a humanitarian organization in those situations. So the problem is, even if you have those systems and those forms of professionalization in place, it might actually undermine some of the humanitarian outcomes that you're looking for. So it's a, it, it's a double bind, really. You can improve your professionalism, you'll become more conservative, you'll be less responsive, you'll be less able to deal with fast-moving events on the ground, but at least you'll survive. Um, and that's a dreadful position to be in. And on that point, let me intersect here. So what can be done to balance this, to be professional and to be humanitarian response organization? What should be done by on the NGO side? Okay, um, that's where our recommendations come in. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to slope shoulder on that one, I think. Um, but but it is, I, I think it is a fair point that I think um, there are a small number of humanitarian organizations, new, who have uh, uh, community-based, you know, wonderful aspirations, usually wonderful people, um, but they do need to improve their systems and the way in which they work. And we, we came across one um, European bank, for example, that um, sort of made a really good point. Um, they had very developed Know Your Customer due diligence processes themselves. They had ha had looked at, and they, they let us look at some of the case studies of um, I think it was 25 um, humanitarian organizations based in Europe um, that had, be, had 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 their accounts shuttered by the kind of main uh, banks in those countries. Um, and they had taken on, I think it was about 20 of those uh, humanitarian organizations that other banks wouldn't touch. And they had an enhanced due diligence process. They developed a relationship with those humanitarian organizations. They did, those organizations had invested in training, reform of governance. Uh, so they were in pretty healthy by kind of Western managerial uh, benchmarks mm -hmm. uh, uh, form. But there were five or so of those debanked organizations that had simply failed uh, to make any form of reform. And they didn't have uh, appropriate financial controls in place. Uh, they weren't uh, engaging in sufficient due diligence on the ground. So there is a kind of, I suppose there's, there's a sort of Goldilocks spot where with the right bank, with the right governance and due diligence reforms, you can begin to ease the processes and survive. And then there's that sort of distant, too far from the bright, side, uh, bright sunshine group of organizations that haven't made sufficient reforms. The problem is that in places like Syria, uh, we're often seeing both highly professional, well-developed organizations that are household names in the United States and the uh, United Kingdom and Europe, we're finding those organizations blocked 
just as much as the ones that live outside the Goldilocks zone of professional competence. Okay, right. Um, please, Kay. Thank you. Um, Kagan Ann, Charity and Security Network. Is this on? Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to address the question of what NGOs uh, can do. Uh, one thing is uh, to become active in the financial access working group that we coordinate, which is where uh, a good number of NGOs that do a lot of different kinds of work are work conducting advocacy in a lot of fronts. We're part of multi-stakeholder dialogues, also meeting with staff on the Hill talking with Treasury and others, and long-term, that kind of collective action uh, hopefully will make a difference. So if you're not involved in that, uh, please let us know. Um, the other question I wanted to ask um, regarding the slide on unintended consequences where geographic areas uh, may be excluded, um, there may be unresponsive program choices or or, um, or commodities provided instead of cash, where cash would be more appropriate. Um, there are some in government who may come to us to the effect that, well, this is, uh, these kind of consequences are a good thing. That means you're avoiding risk. Um, so how would you uh, respond to that? And why are those things problematic? Yeah. Uh, you want to have a question? Yeah, yeah. All questions. Um, I'd like to make a comment, really, just to, um, on the point Stuart made at the end. And I think um, we, we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of NGOs, NPOs, well-established 20, 30 years, who, again, are facing uh, this de-risking issue, who have the due diligence, who um, are doing the necessary paperwork, but yet they're still being affected. And it's a large number of organizations that are being affected, both in these areas as well as in, in Europe and in the US. So the question still stands, why is that the case? And it's often um, by different banks. Sometimes banks would allow a transaction, and others won't. Um, could be for the same program, just different time of the year. So there's a lot of questions that still need to be asked um, of why that is the case. Uh, I think we shouldn't forget that's usually, that's most of the cases it's about NGOs who are well established and, and do the right due diligence and still are impacted by this. Want to start? Yeah, I, I think that's entirely right. I think what the onus is often put on the NGOs to say that your compliance procedures aren't great. And to the points that are raised, that is the case in some instances, but certainly not everywhere. And I think right now that is where the buck has sort of stopped in this hot potato game. And it's not the one that's going to solve the problem. But the challenge that you have is, is speaking frankly, that word terrorism, right? It immediately retracts such a hard line response that NGOs are looking for uh, flexible solutions. They're looking for concessions in places that demand them due to the nature of the crisis. And that word is just going to be a hard barrier kind of wherever you run up against it. So I think that again speaks a bit to the point of finding the message that does resonate, finding the ways that kind of get around that core terrorism element and address broader security aims, trade and development aims, things that kind of have those responses. I think it also requires, to the point I mentioned before, but getting information on where and why that the account was closed. I think we all understand the scope and scale that's happening, but we don't really understand the decision making within those institutions. And unless we figure out what that is, NGOs don't have any guidance on how to solve that problem. And that is a space that I do think government can step into and help promote and advocate. 
And at the same time, I think that needs to be paired with your Goldilocks situation, which is you know, finding a bank that is willing to spend the time to understand nuanced risk perceptions. And that might require a lobbyist movement on behalf of NGOs. So partnering with some of these well-established big names, also some of the local access providers, those who can actually get into those communities, and making a business case why it is profitable for these banks to engage in that. That is probably not going to resonate with your big transnational banks, but it might with some of your smaller mid-tier banks. You might be able to find some folks who, for them, getting access to the number and scale of those clients would be valuable. It would be worth it to them to develop a more nuanced compliance system because they would get the scale of that bank. Wow. Um, <laughs> what a lot to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm going to pick up on Kay's um, a, a excellent question. It's, it's um, to what extent is risk being managed um, by uh, policymakers dealing with counter-terrorist financing legislation? Um, I think the problem is that the, the, if you switch a program from cash to commodities, you make the commodities which have to cross confrontation lines into um, besieged areas um, extremely valuable. And there is significant evidence of um, non-state armed groups manipulating the price of commodities on two sides of a confrontation line in order to extract um, taxation and, uh, and money. So, Switching from cash transfer to commodities switches the market but doesn't reduce the risk. Um, commodities can be resold, commodities can be taxed, they can provide the same sorts of financial benefits to non-state armed groups uh, as a claim for cash transfer programming. Um, so. I, are you actually able to reduce overall levels of risk through these measures? No. Um, if you're moving money through Hawala systems, which you're not um, engaging with in any way, shape, uh, or form, you're moving it through um, financial systems which um, are incredibly valuable, incredibly useful in Mexico, Pakistan, elsewhere, for remittances to return to, uh, 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 to, uh, to other countries. These, these are amazingly valuable systems. But if in a conflict situation you create um, a, a scarcity of money supply and money liquidity, um, new actors will move into those areas. And if you drive all of your financial transactions through that marketplace, the chances are you'll have more diversion. And uh, the moment you create huge centers of profit or potential profit, you will have diversion. So those marketplaces do need to be thought about. They can't simply be regulated out of existence. They, that simply won't happen. Um, but there needs to be a system of identifying where we have less risky transactions through those systems. And we have some wonderful remittance highways. Uh, in the UK, for example, the UK-Pakistan remittance highway uh, is great. Here you have a, a, a country that, that has um, issues with prescribed organizations. You have significant volumes of money moving through the money transfer system because it's a high volume, predictable set of monies that will be going through the system. So it's financially lucrative. The problem that we have is how do we create systems that allow um, uh, high volumes of money that peak and drop 
to fairly unprofitable levels, how do we create a system that allows those to function in a more transparent way? So I think the problem that we've got at the moment is um, yeah, we're, we're, we're dealing uh, with risk like we would deal with a game whack-a-mole, uh, where you've got a mole popping up through all sorts of different holes at a playground. You have to bash the thing as it, with a hammer as it uh, pokes, uh, pokes up. What we've, doing, what we've done with much of the counter-terrorist finance legislation is we've closed a couple of holes, but the moles are popping up elsewhere. So we've transferred risk. Uh, risk has not been reduced. We've uh, increased uh, the opportunities for uh, diversion inadvertently, and we've closed down significant avenues of access for humanitarians as well, which strikes me as a, a policy system um, which isn't one necessarily to be proud of. Um, but I also think uh, that we, there are no simple solutions as well. So for example, blockchain. Um, talking to some bankers about blockchain. Will blockchain solve the problem? Well, no, because real cash has to enter the system and come out of the system at some point. And that's what will be regulated and strangled unless you can comply. Um, are we able to simply solve the problem with biometrics? Well, not necessarily. What about countries and, uh, that have got very few real uh, identity processes, uh, identity management processes, or very little real technology. Those are going to be very challenging as well. So the, the trick is probably to engage in identifying what counts as legitimate residual risk in the system for a humanitarian and a bank to accept, and also looking uh, for systems where when the financial system marketplace itself fails to provide these services, then policymaker action can step in and create legitimate highways for finance to move through into those systems. Well, um, I think it's a good place to end up uh, our event here. And please join me in thanking Tracy and Stuart for their insights and invaluable input. Thank you very much.